I titled the sermon, Has God Failed His Chosen? Has God Failed His Chosen? And it's kind of a funny sentence to even complete. Uh, In fact, you're pretty much going to answer the question uh, no if you start with, has God failed? Okay, whatever you finish the the question with, it's probably going to be no. God doesn't fail at anything. So I want to ask a question that we know the obvious answer to at the beginning, but I think the question is important for us to ask. It's the question, really, that I think would have been an objection that Paul is anticipating here as he finishes chapter 8 and moves then into chapter 9. So let's kind of go through these verses here and we'll, we'll see this transition take place. It's, it's quite a spectacular change in tone. From chapter 8 where we left off, remember chapter 8 before we go there, remember where we were, the joy, the overflow, the crescendo, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and there's no separation. That's where we ended the chapter. It's this, this overflow. What shall separate us? Nothing. No one can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Very next verses, okay? I am speaking the truth in Christ, Paul writes. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So all of what he's about to say, he prefaces with this. Let's be clear. This is true. I know it's true because what I feel, and as I write, the Spirit is confirming these words. Get ready. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What a transition Paul moves us into now. His confidence in speaking God's word is important for us to note. It's not often that we hear Paul say these things. And, and partly, I, I sense that, that Paul knows that what he's about to give us is difficult. It's, it's, it's difficult to receive. But it's also important for us to know that Paul is not treating this with just a, a raw kind of mechanical truth um, you know, dump. It, it, it's not just like the back up the dump truck and bury us with, with just truth. He feels something. He feels deeply. It is the truth of our minds and the the affections of our heart that come together with biblical revelation that are so important for us to keep that together. He feels a, a deep anguish here. Why would he move from the crescendo of chapter 8, immediately shift into chapter 9 with this anguish, this unceasing anguish? Well, It's because of his kinsmen, according to the flesh. There is today, and there has been over many, many years, even in the time that Paul wrote, a widespread Jewish unbelief and rejection of Jesus the Christ. They have largely stiff-armed the gospel. Now, not completely, not completely so. In fact, as Paul writes to this church in Rome, there are some who were Jews, who were saved by Christ, putting their faith in Jesus and forsaking all the works that they used to to, to perform, trusting in His work alone, right? So there are people in this church that he's writing to who are uh, Jewish people who have been saved by the gospel. But by and large, the Jews have rejected their Messiah. And this weighs on Paul. By the way, 
who is a Jew of Jews himself. He knows what it's like to, to walk in the ways of the Jewish faith. This was his. In fact, he was, if you remember, he was persecuting Christians, thinking that he was doing God a favor. And then the Lord opened his eyes and saved him powerfully and showed him the fullness of his Jewish faith realized in Christ. It's all about Jesus. So what do we make then of this widespread, even today, Jewish rejection of Jesus Christ? He says, I could wish. That word could is interesting. Don't miss that. He doesn't just say, I wish. He says, I could wish. He's acknowledging here, this is not possible. This is not, it's not something that I could do. But if I could, I would. I wish that I was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. If, what he's saying is, listen, if I could take their place so that they could be in Christ, I would. I would do that. Do you feel an impassioned love for those who are unsaved? In Paul, this is the degree of heartache that he feels for those who are not saved, who have in hard-hearted rejection turned their back on Christ and rejected their Messiah. We have to feel this with Paul, not just know this, feel it, the anguish of his heart. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He says, these two things are not mutually exclusive. They can happen at the same time. You can have joy in the salvation that God has given. You can delight in the riches of his grace and your heart can break for those who rail against Christ and run the other way. You can long for them to be saved and rejoice in what you've been given. They go hand in hand for the Christian life, don't they? We learn about the situation of those who are hard-hearted in rejection of Christ. They are accursed. They are cut off from Christ. That's why Paul is saying, by implication, this is what we learn is true of uh, the widespread rejection of Christ. If, if Paul was saying, I wish that I would be accursed and cut off, he's saying they are. That's the situation. It's dire. The reason the change of tone, the reason the weight and the anguish comes is because this objection is, is, I think, echoing in Paul's mind as he writes. Someone may say, well, listen, Paul, um, you know, I I was a Jew like you. Now I'm saved, but what about our kinsmen? What about all the other Jews who are just lost in, in their rejection and hatred of Christ? If they have been cut off as God's chosen nation, by and large, then how is it that we can have the confidence that Romans 8 is going to ring true? You see what he's saying? There's no separation. There's no condemnation. All of these promises are true. And Paul says, yes, they are true, absolutely. But this objection could come, well, that's what Israel thought too. That's what they thought. They, they, they had all these blessings, but but now look at their rejection of Christ. So if that happened to them, could it happen to us? Has God failed His chosen? That is the real question of Romans 9. And what Paul wants to do is with decisive 
clear, spectacular doctrine, answer the question with a resounding no. He has not failed his chosen. He will never fail his chosen. So let's go on, verses 4 and 5. The great privileges of Israel. The great privileges of Israel. Then what advantage has the Jew? Paul writes. Oh, this, oh, by the way, sorry, I'm I'm back in chapter 3. Do you remember when we were in chapter 3? And Paul said this. This is where the list began, okay? And only Paul can do stuff like this, okay? He, he left off a list in chapter 3, picks it up in chapter 9. Listen to how he starts the list. What advantage has the Jew? Or what value is, uh, or, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, key words, I'm going to start my list. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's all he said there. Then he goes on and he builds out chapter after chapter of the gospel. And, and this list is a completion of that beginning. To begin with, it starts there. So, first of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now look at how he goes on. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, the Christ, who, and he just can't help but have like this, this crescendo of worship, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What a list there is there. They are the Israelites. Let's look at this list all on one page. Look, look at the blessings of the Jews. God's people that he... He didn't just choose. He made them from one man. He made a nation. He made them numerous. The oracles of God. The adoption. When, when uh, the exodus was occurring, God spoke to Pharaoh and, and referred to Israel as his son. His son. Let Israel go. My son. <clears throat> the glory. He revealed his glory in spectacular ways as they were in his presence. And they beheld his presence there. They, they, they saw the light of the cloud by night and felt the warmth of that flame. And they followed him as they wandered in the desert. They were given the covenants, all of Mount Sinai. Think of all that that is. Uh, that would be the law, I guess. The covenants before that. The Abrahamic covenant. The promises. I'm going to make of you a nation. That's unconditional, by the way. And then the giving of the law. The Mosaic covenant, which was a conditional covenant. And how do those two come together? Well, they come together in the new covenant in Christ. That's the only way to resolve the the difference between those two. That is what the Jews have rejected, is the new covenant that Christ brought in and initiated. They were given the opportunity to worship all of what we studied in Leviticus, the, the, the slaughtering of animals, to be in His presence, the realization of their sin day after day after day revealing their lack of holiness and revealing the holiness of God. They were given the promises that there is a way for sinners to be saved by faith, by faith in the Messiah, the One who would be the Lamb, who would atone for all these sins. They have the patriarchs and 
most significantly from their race, Jesus came. Jesus is Jewish. He was a fully credentialed, established Jewish rabbi, as it were. He was a Jew through and through. Son of David, the king. All of these things mean nothing if you reject Jesus. They're all about Jesus. Paul knows that. We know this. Every single thing, every blessing that was given to the Jews had a, a, a focal point, a push, and it was to direct their gaze to Christ, to show the Messiah in His fulfillment of all that they couldn't. So, blessing upon blessing, but if you reject Jesus, oh, you, you lose the whole value of all of these things. You can't just say, yeah, but we have the, the covenants. Well, you broke them. We have the promises. You have disqualified yourself from your rejection of the Messiah. We have the worship. Your worship is vain without Christ. You go down the list. You have to have Christ for these to be um, established and of value. Whether it be anticipating Him in the Messiah, placing faith in the One who is to come, or celebrating Him as we do as the Messiah, the One who came and worked and is alive today. Jesus says this in the context of dealing with a Roman centurion who had great faith and came and said, listen, you say the word and you can heal my servant. Jesus says, listen, this is spectacular faith. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is Jesus saying here? This is a foreshadowing of what is to come. This is about us, friends. A largely Gentile audience here. This is is those who've been grafted in, brought in by God's grace, doubly apportioned to us, far removed now, sons and eating at His table, while those, the sons of the kingdom, that is the Jewish people, who reject Jesus, will go to hell. That, that this, is, this is not a new teaching. This is long established. Jesus taught this. I think it's important to note here, just kind of take a step back from what he is doing and ask the question, what does Paul not do in this anguish that he feels? Okay? This is not just uh, theological musings. It's real life stuff. Some of you have friends, family, children, parents, loved ones who are hard-hearted and hating Christ and living their life with as if He either doesn't exist at all or just full-fledged rejection of Him. What does Paul not do with the anguish he feels? He sees hard-hearted rejection unbelief and it it just it tears him up inside when confronted by these truths of the electing work of god the sovereign work of god in salvation sometimes people really they grind at this they 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 get very upset by it and it's 
It's very, I, I, I understand the source of this. It's because you love and you want to see people saved. Here's what he does not do. He does not go at God with his anguish. He doesn't interrogate God in his all-wise purposes. He doesn't direct anger at God for the hard-hearted rejection of his kinsmen. He doesn't question God's character or cast doubt on his goodness or his sovereignty. He doesn't condemn God's actions. Oh, friends, it's easy to be in this place. Oh, the enemy loves to tempt us in this way. Doubt him. Call into question his goodness. He's holding out on you. He could save them, but he's not. What does that mean about God? That is not where Paul goes. He doesn't accuse God of unrighteousness. This entire chapter is a theophany, as it were. It's a a defense of God. Paul, by the way, God doesn't need us to defend him, but Paul wants to defend our thinking so that we never go down that road. Somehow that we would interrogate the God of all glory. The one who defines what is just and right and true. That somehow our idea of fairness is going to be set upon God in judgment. And this is important for us. It sets us up for the weeks ahead. When we bump into things that are, that are difficult for us, guard your heart, friends. Guard your heart. It is not ours to pass judgment on the God who is. We are His creation. Paul does not question God. What he does is he understands that there is a responsibility. This is where these things come together. Yes, God is sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign. I use that word with with great clarity and purpose. Absolutely sovereign in salvation. He is the one who saves. And we are responsible for rejecting him. We are responsible for hard hearts. We are responsible for stiff-arming Christ, for running from the light. We choose iniquity. We choose sin. We choose rebellion. And that choice is rightly punished by God in his justice. It's what all of us do by instinct. We are natural-born sinners, rebels to the core. We know this from Romans 1. We've already covered this, right? We are responsible for that hardness of heart. And Paul is not trying to you know, dress that up and make it look less than it is. He's not saying, oh, these poor Jewish people, they don't deserve that. That's not what he's saying. He knows when you reject Christ and you rail against the God of all glory, and you experience the fires of hell, you chose that. And you experience what you rightly deserve. So divine sovereignty is taught in the Bible. And human responsibility is taught in the Bible. We are accountable to God for our sin. How they come together, there's a word I like to use which is called concurrence. Concurrence. Think of two rivers that flow together. Two two streams that come down from the mountains. They flow in and they come together. How do you tell which molecules came from which river? You can't. 
You can't show up at that river and say, well, this is from the North Fork and this is from the South Fork. They come together and they mingle as one. That is the truth of these, these doctrines in your Bible. There is a place where we see distinction and then there's a place where we see unity and we say, Lord, you are good, you are just, you are right. These are both true. Reminds us of what Isaiah, who we're about to study here, said, God revealed through the prophet Isaiah. He said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are, are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We should regularly bump into this. And we do, don't we? We do. And when we do, don't grind. D don't interrogate. Worship. Worship and trust. God is good. He is able. He could save everyone if He wanted to. He is not bound at all. He has chosen that this is the way He would bring salvation to pass. So, let's see how this builds out. All of these privileges, and yet the anguish of Paul's heart is hard-hearted rejection of Christ. Verse 6, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and then he quotes from the book of Genesis, chapter 21, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Okay, we might start having our heads swim a little bit here, but let's, let's just parse this out a little. What he's saying is, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you can say, as the Pharisees did, well, our father is Abraham, doesn't mean it's all good. Just because you have Jewish blood does not mean that you don't have a sin problem or a wrath issue with the God of all glory. There is something that is distinct among the children of Israel that set some in one group and some in another group. What is the difference? Faith. Faith. That is the difference. We saw this already when it came to circumcision, didn't we? Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work, not by the letter. His praise is, not, uh, is from man. It is not from man, but from God. So if, you, if, if works and actions are what you're counting on, Lord, I'm doing all these things and I deserve from you, you miss the whole point. No one has ever been saved by works, by doing. We are only saved by faith, and that includes the Old Testament. When they did the things they were commanded to do, they were to do them in faith in the promise of God, that all of them anticipated the work of Christ. Every sacrifice was about Jesus. And then he points to Isaac, not Ishmael. Isaac, not Ishmael. So crash course in the book of Genesis. You remember how this went? Abraham, you're my man. I choose you. You're, you. 
You're, you're a polytheist. You're not even saved. I choose you. I, I set you apart. Come follow me and, and, and worship me alone, right? And then you and Sarah are going to have a son. And it is through that son that I will build a nation. The problem is, is that years passed, like a lot of years passed. And Abraham and Sarah got old, far beyond childbearing years. And so Sarah came one day to Abraham and said, listen, this just isn't working. If we're supposed to be a nation and we have yet to have any children together, we got to take matters in our own hands. Here's what we need to do. I have a slave servant and, and her name is Hagar and I, she's from Egypt and I want to give her to you as a wife and then you can have children with her. Maybe that's what we're supposed to do. It... it it echoes of Genesis, doesn't it? Sarah's lack of faith moves to Abraham. There's a choice that he has to make. Will he trust the Lord? Will he believe the promise of God? Or will he take matters into his own hands and do things to make it happen? Work to accomplish what he sees as the promise of God. He takes Hagar as his wife and has his firstborn son, who is named Ishmael. Well, this quickly goes south. Sarah does not like Hagar or the fact that she had Abraham's firstborn son, and so she drives uh, Hagar away, and, and, and Abraham sends Hagar away, and the Lord protects them and takes care of them. Um, by the way, that moment echoes in our day still. You think of the hostility in the Middle East, it tracks back to that moment, that lack of faith, catastrophic implications. God comes and says in Genesis 17, no, that is not the plan. This is not the way it's going to go down. Yes, you had a firstborn son. He is not the one that I will name the promise through. Trust me, Sarah will conceive and she will bear a son, and you will call his name Isaac, and he will be the son of the promise. It is an amazing thing to consider. Abraham, 100 years old. Sarah, 90. She has their firstborn son together. But Abraham's secondborn son. And God says, not Ishmael, Isaac. Birth order would say, it has to be Ishmael. And there are many in our world today who say it still is Ishmael. God says, no, it's Isaac. He's the son of the promise. He's the one through whom the promise will be named. Why does this matter? Why, why does this have such significance? Because God is free to choose which son he wants to set the blessing upon. God is the one that makes that decision, not us. We are not sovereign. God is. It's a fascinating contrast between the works of Abraham and the faith of Abraham. I, th I think even the gospel is prefigured here in this difference. Abraham working to try to figure it out and make it happen on his own versus Abraham trusting the God who promised to bring, by the way, sovereign election and a miraculous birth. They, they go hand in hand. Isaac will be his name, he will be born in Sarah's old age. He will be the son of the promise. 
And he was. How amazing is that? Why did God do it that way? Why were they so old? Because God alone is to be glorified. He doesn't share his glory. He wants it to be so clear. When I do things, worship me. That's what he's saying. Hmm. This means, Paul writes, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And I would just add here, just because you're a child of Isaac doesn't mean you're automatically saved either, right? All of this, even the, the, the line through which uh, Christ would come, it all tracks back to those who are saved are saved by faith. They're saved by faith. You can't say, well, you guys say you have Abraham as your father. That's not it. But I have Isaac as my father. That's also not enough. Even though he is the son of the promise, yes. Where's the faith in the Messiah? Children of God here means this is not just some national election that's being discussed. This is talking about salvation. This, this isn't just as some kind of write off these chapters as just it's kind of a national thing, kind of a, 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 a group. No, groups are made up of individuals. Nations are selected as, as blessed as God pleases. But among those nations that are selected as blessed, those who are saved are saved individually. And so we're talking here children of God. This is salvific language. Children of God. We know from Jesus' words that we just looked at in Matthew that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be with us in glory. What does that tell us? It tells us that God saved them by grace. They were not automatically good because they were born. They were born again of God, saved by faith in the Messiah. In Romans 9.27, we read this, this stark reality. We're going to get here in a few weeks. Isaiah, as Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, will experience salvation. So true Israel is Israel that possesses faith. Those who are true Jews, as it were, are those who trust Christ as Savior. Why is it like that? Because God has ordained. Why is it like that? Because Israel hardened her heart. Both true. It's like that because God has chosen that it be like that. And it's like that because Israel hardened her heart. And every Jew who experiences the fires of hell to this day is there because they chose that with all their heart, rejected their Messiah. That weighs heavy on Paul, weighs heavy on his heart. Abraham's faith or Abraham's blood. It matters not that the blood of Abraham moves through your veins if you don't possess the faith in Christ that Abraham had. I trust you, Lord. I trust you. I'll obey you. It was counted to him as righteousness. Do you possess Abraham's faith today? Or do you look to other things, maybe proximity to the church, to, to give you confidence that you're okay with God? 
So in answer to the question at the sermon title, the Word of God has not failed. The Word of God never fails. Let's be clear. God never fails. He has not failed His chosen and He never will. Romans 8 is still true, friends. It's still true. And we're going to see it even more so next week and the following and the following. As, as Paul builds out this, this defense, as it were, of the righteousness and just, uh, just work of God in all that he does. So application this morning, a few things to point out. Number one, I would just say this. It's possible to be showered in blessings and not love Jesus. It is dangerously possible to come to this church week after week to love the fellowship of the believers, to enjoy singing, to stand and sit, to bow your head in prayer, to sit under the preaching of the word, even to say, amen, preacher. But what about Christ? Is he your love? Is he your hope alone? Is he everything, your treasure, your savior, your Lord? If that is not the case, meaningless and vain, None of this matters if Jesus is not Savior. Don't fall for religion, friends. It's all about Christ. Everything we do is to draw our attention to Christ, the only hope of sinners. So if you're here today, make it about Christ, not about coming and singing and all of the, all of the stuff that we do. That, that, that's all worthless Focus your heart to Christ and all of that, all of that will be far greater. Your joy will abound. You, you think you love to sing before you were saved? Oh man, wait till God saves you from your sin. Run to Christ. Embrace Him as Savior and Lord. Turn from your sin and be saved. He is the only hope of sinners back then and today and forever. Secondly, Let's learn from Abraham. When we are tempted to take matters into our own hands, and friends, the situations abound, don't they? Oh, they, they do. We find ourselves here regularly. God delights to be the focal point in the moments when we are tempted to grab onto the steering wheel and say, I'll, I'll do this. I, I think I can do this better. Maybe you forgot what's going on here, God. Um, I, I don't know, but, but I, I feel like maybe... I've got a better handle on the situation. I'll do this. Reject that instinct. Walk away from that. Trust the Lord. Rest in His promises. Believe in His work, His plan. There are many churches that meet today around the world and they, they, in, they just propagate works as where you should place your hope. That you should build your life on the things you do and then you can be confident that you're okay before God because of what you do. Abraham would say, no, trust me. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Just look at the Middle East. It has terrible consequences. Trust the promise of God. His promises find their yes in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Lastly, we'll just ask this question. Does your heart break for those who are unsaved? 
Do you feel the delight and the glory? Yes, we celebrate what God has done in our lives. Praise God for Romans 8. But what happens in my heart in Romans 9 when I look around at my neighbors, at this county, at this world? What a mess. Maybe a prayer to pray here would be, Lord, place in me the same kind of anguish that Paul felt for those who were hard-hearted in their rejection of Jesus. Help me to love the lost. Help me to love those who are dying under the weight of their own sins. Help me to feel this freedom, yes, and then long to share that with them. Use me to speak your message. Make me bold to call out the hope of sinners around the world. Let's pray. Oh God, we acknowledge that you are the sovereign in salvation. Oh, we, we, we confess that we make ourselves far too important. We give ourselves credit for things that we simply don't do. And we fail to give credit to you for the, the, the amazing work that you do. Father, we delight in your sovereignty in saving sinners from their sins. We also feel that responsibility that is ours to, to, to obey you and to, to run to you in faith. And so, God, I pray if there would be any here today who have yet to, to turn from their sins and trust Jesus as Savior and Lord alone, stop working to try to be good enough, but, but to trust you, to trust the promise that, that if we place our faith in Christ, we will be saved. I pray today that you would bring salvation. Stir hearts that are hard and soften them. Do what only you can do, that what we can't do. Accomplish salvation, I pray. Run people to your Son, Jesus. Save them from their sins. Lord, weigh upon us with the lost. Weigh upon us with those who hate you, who rail against you. Give us hearts of compassion for those who are unsaved. And Bring that anguish that Paul felt. Lord, help it to weigh on us and and motivate us to be bolder, to speak more quickly of the gospel that has saved us. Father, help us to Romans 8 and also to Romans 9. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.